Las Vegas Metro Police Department released a report on needed improvements after the October 1 mass shooting that left 58 people dead. The city of Las Vegas signed on to a resolution not to pay ransoms to future hackers, and Democrats will be able to call in their votes for the first time ever in Nevada's First in the West Caucus in February 2020. All that and more coming up on this special edition of Indie Matters, brought to you by the Nevada Independent. Welcome to this special edition of Indie Matters, the podcast of the Nevada Independent. I'm Elizabeth Thompson, the managing editor. The podcast is taking a break for the rest of July and possibly some of August. And in lieu of that, for the next few weeks, uh, one of the editors will be chatting with an indie reporter about the big stories we published and what's going on with 2020, of course. Joining me today is reporter Megan Masterly. Welcome to the not quite usual Indie Matters podcast show. Thank you, Elizabeth. <laughs> good to be back. And good to be back here in Las Vegas instead of up in the up in the north. Yes, welcome back. Megan spent six months in Carson City, as I'm sure you all know from, from reading her excellent reporting from the legislature. Um, now that the dust, I think, has fully settled from uh, that, we can be on to other topics. So um, a lot of good stories uh, this week, a little bit to my surprise, because we in the news business, we usually think of this time as the summer news doldrums, not a lot going on. Sometimes we really have to struggle to find those news stories. But this week um, has gifted us with with quite a few. So first up, uh, yesterday, Clark County Sheriff Joe Lombardo conducted a briefing at which he presented the findings of an extensive report on needed changes and improvements after the October 1 mass shooting at Mandalay Bay. Among them was better communications uh, with area hospitals um, and also with the coroner's office, um, as well as general measures to secure tall buildings uh, near open air venues, um, and also just the need in general for more emergency situation training um, and more emergency kits. They actually ran out of tourniquets and bandages and all the things that you need um, in those situations, of course, because no one was prepared uh, for what happened that night. What, what did you think uh, when you read through the the report on this report, Megan? Yeah, so our our, our intrepid, one of our intrepid interns, we have a, a fantastic team of interns, first of all, helping us out this summer. Uh, one of them, Zach, was covering this for us yesterday. And I mean, the first of all, this is a comprehensive report. It was 158 pages. There were 93 total recommendations. Um, so far, they said yesterday that about 47% of the recommendations have been put in place. So there's just the sheer number of, of things they were looking at in this, like you mentioned, from communication with the hospitals to communication among first responders. I mean, this this was really a comprehensive look at sort of what worked and what didn't. Um, I, I thought it was interesting, you know, some of what they said went right uh, on, on the actual day of the shooting. So they looked at uh, Metro's existing partnerships with first responders, um, different uh, routine multi-agency training exercises that they already are doing. Um, and then the ability of Metro to actually link in with some of these private security teams that work on the resorts to have that communication in real time. Uh, so there isn't that gap in communication. But obviously, you know, the the what we were looking at in the report primarily is, you know, where where is the room for improvement? Um, and like you mentioned, you know, 
securing high-rise structures, right? Making sure that, especially when you have a high-rise structure that's overlooking a place where there could be a concert or there could be a large gathering of people in, in a street or a parade or something like that, making sure that those are secure. And then like you were saying too, that making sure that the supplies are there, especially for these, you know, big ticket events. Um, I know one issue that came up over and over again, and the Review Journal's done a lot of great reporting on this too, but uh, one of the issues that they identified is insufficient rifle training by officers, insufficient range time, and insufficient protective equipment for patrol officers. So folks just feeling like they weren't totally prepared going into this, you know, emergency situation. Yeah. And in fairness to Metro and every other first responder and every other person in the Valley who um, dealt with this horrific situation that night, it's pretty difficult, I think, to be prepared for something like that if it has never happened before uh, in your city. Um, And indeed, because of the casualties here, um, this is one of uh, the worst events of this type that's ever occurred in American history. So I just, I have found myself since the beginning um, feeling a fair amount of sympathy for everyone who was a responder and I'm sure wished that they had thought of every possible thing ahead of time. Um, I'm, I'm sure there had to be a lot of, of regrets and second guessing um, that, that went on. Um, and I can't imagine how that feels to feel responsible or as if you could have done more or, or should have done more. Um, I was impressed with how comprehensive the report was. I was also surprised uh, to learn Cal- uh, Captain Kelly McCahill, who um, who stood alongside Lombardo yesterday during the briefing, she said that close to half of the recommendations in the report have already been implemented. Um, so they're on that. And then um, all the other initiatives, she said, basically need either more time or my- more money or both to put in place, some of those being uh, technology related. But it sounds like the sheriff's office is committed to keeping the public informed. Uh, the Office of Internal Oversight is going to issue a bi-monthly report going forward. Um, and the contents of that initial report were posted online. And for those of you who didn't see the story or, or are curious about that report, there's a link to it in our story uh, on the website, thenevadaindependent.com, if you want to go and take a look at that for yourself. Yeah. I think just to add two two other interesting things that I think jumped out to me, um, one of them, you know, we we're talking a lot about response the night of, but one of the things that are part highlighted too is the need for communication when it comes to, for instance, like kin notification for the, the folks that were, were injured and the folks that passed away. There wasn't this system for the coroner's office and the Clark County Fire Department and hospital administrators to communicate. That that system just hadn't, you know, been put in place. And that's not a, you know, necessarily night night of policy. It's something, you know, that's that's happening, you know, in the in the hour and the days afterwards. So I thought I thought that was pretty interesting. And then another thing that, that jumped out to me was the fact that Metro is creating um, a policy for how off-duty officers should self-deploy the night of the event. So obviously a lot of you know folks were seeing the news, seeing the tweets, seeing that this was going on, and officers who were off-duty were reporting, but there was just not the kind of structure in place um, to figure out, okay, where, where do they go? How can they be of use? Where do they fit into this emergency response plan? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay, good. Uh, good discussion. So um, good job to the sheriff's uh, office, and we'll, um, we'll stay on it if further news um, comes out of that. So on to topic two. Uh, after a ransomware attack um, that happened, I think, back in May that essentially crippled the city of Baltimore uh, and ultimately took about a month and close to $18 million to restore uh, all the data and systems Um, The city of Baltimore, along with other cities, including Las Vegas, kind of got together and decided to sign on to a joint resolution 
not to pay ransoms to future hackers who come in and install malware um, and, and demand these exorbitant amounts of money. I, I was surprised to hear this. It's an interesting strategy. It's new. Um, there are a few cities around the country who, who have had to deal with ransomware, and, and it seems as if it probably is going to become more and more a thing. I've been a little surprised that no state government uh, systems have experienced anything too egregious. There was a there was a data mishap, if I recall, a year or two ago uh, in Nevada, but it was a it was a limited system, and I, I think they got it under wraps um, pretty quickly. But the city of Las Vegas now saying we will not uh, pay ransoms. So uh, I hopefully they figure out uh, fast and inexpensive workarounds because um, the city of Baltimore uh, really was on its knees for about a month. They were unable to do anything and users of the city website were unable to do anything, include, including pay their water bills. Right, right. I thought that that was the most interesting that jumped out to me as it was, yeah, any, anything from city email and phone systems to, like you were saying, just paying water bills, like anything that went through the city. Um, you, you just you don't think about that kind of thing until it's not there, until it goes down. Um, one of the things that was my colleague Jacob, who reported the story, and he talked to a lot of different experts in this field. Um, and I thought one of the interesting things that they said, which kind of you know makes sense in this conversation of okay, do you pay the ransom? Do you not? Um, is that sometimes there's no guarantee that even if you pay the ransom, right, that you're going to get your data back? Um, for instance, in the city of Baltimore's case, uh, they wanted uh, the payment of 13 Bitcoin, which at, at the time was about a hundred thousand um, dollars. But at the same time, you're paying that, and you you know you hope you get your data back. But it's, you know, you're you're at the mercy of of the hackers, which is why, you know, there's this resolution now from the U.S. Conference of Mayors, um, you know, saying that we're, we're just not going to do this. This isn't something that we're uh, going to do. We're just going to deal with it ourselves. And, and another interesting detail from Jacob's story was that because the city of Baltimore didn't pay, they spent about a month and more than $18 million to restore all their services, um, which obviously is a significant time investment. So I think a lot of folks are looking at, okay, how do we prevent this in the future? You know, how do we shore up our systems? Um, and another, I think, interesting point from Jacob's story, he cited this uh, 2018 study by a security firm that found that Las Vegas is the most insecure metro area in the country um, because there's low state funding for cybersecurity and then just tens of millions of tourists and convention attendees just coming through the city. Uh, there's so many unprotected Wi-Fi networks that folks are just drop, drop, jumping into, you know, as they're going from, from you know, cafe to hotel to wherever it is they're going um, and just the, the vulnerabilities that expose is the area too. Yeah, I was surprised too that we are not just in and among the the worst rated cities when it comes to security, but um, right up there at the top. And and part of the reason, in, in addition to what you mentioned, um, is all of the all of the data that apparently is hackable through Wi-Fi networks. For example, at the Convention and Visitors Authority which sees tens of millions of people a year. So it's not just about the city's systems itself. It's about the sheer volume of human beings that come through uh, Nevada and through Las Vegas in particular and all of the types of data that possibly could be uh, could be hacked or, or scraped um, through different systems. So that's a nightmare scenario for anyone who's in charge of making things run smoothly mm-hmm. <laughs> in Las Vegas for the tourists and, um, and the citizens. Uh, I think hacking and ransomware is not going away. In fact, it's it's going to get worse. 
Um, and I've read quite a few white papers in recent years where there are some serious concerns about um, things like the electric grid um, and nuclear storage sites and out at Hoover Dam. Uh, almost everything we do nowadays, whether it's utilities uh, or or storage or or energy, and if it has anything to do with, to do with safety, it runs on a computer and it runs on a system and it's connected to the internet. And so there's just so much opportunity for nefarious hackers to do so much. Uh, damage. And really, there's no way to prepare except one, which I, it's the one comfort that I got from the story at the end. Um, there's an assistant professor at UNLV who, uh, Professor Kim, who commented on this and just said the only way to not be vulnerable or to fix the problem is to have backups of all your data, basically daily, or at least weekly, so that when the ransomware shows up and the hackers make their demands, you can just say, ha ha, no thanks. You know, we have a backup. We might lose a little bit of data uh, between, you know, what we collected between uh, today and the day before, um, but we can just go back. So I'm, I'm hoping to see news stories from us and others um, that cities and counties and states uh, and, and some of these other institutions that I've mentioned just start doing a better job of backing up all their data on a regular uh, basis. But that kind of redundancy is expensive. It is. Yeah, yeah. And you just think about the sheer, again, the sheer number of ways folks can can get access to your information, whether it's a, a phishing scam in an email or whether it's, you know, people will sometimes set up, you know, a, a Wi-Fi network that looks like, okay, this is my friendly Starbucks network or sure, it's the convention center. You know, it's, it's so easy to set up those kinds of things that folks then unsuspectingly, you know, just click on thinking, okay, this is like legitimate, you know, this, yeah. this looks like the network I'm supposed to be connecting to. I got one the other day, which was odd. And, you know, I'm pretty good at spotting them, but even for like, I start started to move forward with reading this email and I I almost I was preparing to click on the link before I just got a little suspicious and I started reading further but basically it looked like it was from UPS parcel service telling me that they had tried to deliver a package and I do get frequent deliveries from UPS so this was quite normal and I okay um, and then just asking me to quick click on this link to provide just a couple pieces of information to help them and there was just something a little bit suspicious Further down in the email about the way it was er worded, it wasn't quite professional. Mm -hmm. And also the logo, it looked a little off to me. And so I hesitated. And then um, sure enough, when I did a little digging and went to I forwarded the email so that I could see the email address that it was from properly because they were masking that. Mm -hmm. It was obvious that it was not from UPS. But it's easy uh, to get tricked. But you're right. Those phishing emails that try to trick you into thinking it's from your bank mm -hmm. or some vendor that you're accustomed to using or something that you're familiar with is um, really the biggest danger. And I've even heard public officials talk about that, that it's not it's not necessarily hackers just coming in cold into these systems and figuring out how to break through all the walls. They're actually getting the unwitting employees of organizations to click on a link, and that's all it takes. Once that malware is on one computer that's connected to a network, it's it's 
set up to duplicate itself very quickly and literally within seconds your entire system can can be taken down it's it's kind of scary but it seems to me that more companies need to just do training on how to spot a phishing email and how not to click on one if you have any kind of suspicion and you know make sure that um, that that your people are are on guard for for this on a constant basis definitely Okay, next topic, which is near and dear to your heart, Megan, uh, 2020. So uh, you wrote a story this week that I found uh, fascinating and fun, and we got all kinds of reader comments on it as well, and I got quite a few emails as well, and we got lots of reactions on Twitter and Facebook, so people are either very excited or very concerned uh, about what I'm about to say. So uh, the Democrats will be able to call in their votes for the first time ever in Nevada's first in the West caucus in February 2020, correct? That is correct. That okay. That's going to happen. Tell us about this and how is it going to work and how are they going to make sure that it does work? Right. So over the last few months, uh, the state Democratic Party here has been trickling out a series of changes to revamp the caucus process. And a lot of this is in line with what the Democratic National Committee on the national level is doing to try to make the election process for Democrats more um, accessible. You know, they, they try to be a big tent party. They want to bring in everyone they can to participate in the election. So, you know, they're trying to make this, they're trying to make it easy for folks to participate, especially in something like the caucus where historically you have to go on caucus day, you have to be there. It's not like you can just go cast a vote. You have to be there at a specific time to cast your presidential preference. There's this whole realigning process. It's it's quite involved for anyone who's participated in it. And Democrats really like it because they find it as a great voter registration opportunity. In fact, these still are going to have same-day voter registration on the day of the caucus where you can go. And if you're not a Democrat, you can register that day and participate. Um, so they see it as a, as a big opportunity to do outreach to voters. Um, but they recognize that you know, it's not possible for some folks to caucus just because of work um, in the past. And they're going to continue that this year, but they're going to have these at-large precincts on the strip. So casino workers can come caucus, but that doesn't work for everybody. You know, not not everybody is a strip worker. So for the first time this year, they're adding this telecaucus option. We knew they were adding a virtual caucus option. They had said that earlier this year when they're rolling out some of the changes, but they just announced this week that there's going to be this, you can just literally call in, there's going to be an automated moderator who walks you through how to cast your presidential preference, but you can actually, you know, press press one for Joe Biden, press two for Kamala Harris, and the moderator will read back your choices to you. And you can actually vote by phone. Um, you'll be able to select, they haven't said how many options you'll be able to select, but you'll be able to select more than one candidate. And you can kind of rank them to say, you know, Joe Biden's my first choice. Uh, Cory Booker's my, sec my second choice. Bernie Sanders is my third choice. Um, and where that really comes in is when you're at the actual caucus day on the caucus site, there's this realignment process that happens. And that's uh, when a candidate doesn't receive enough votes to be considered quote unquote viable, they have to meet a certain threshold. And if they don't meet that threshold, then they basically aren't, aren't in the running. And then those people who selected that candidate get a chance to cast their ballot for one of the other viable candidates. So that's why that's why it's important that folks who participate telephonically are able to sort of rank their preferences for that process. Okay, so I didn't plan on asking this, but now I'm curious, having never participated um, on the Democratic side in a caucus. So what when you're ranking them what is the point of that? So let, let's say you've got four in mind and you rank them in order. What how does that 
How does that translate to viability? Does that mean that one of those four might just get thrown out at some point or they it just goes in order? So if whoever you ranked second ends up not being viable, then that's out and then it goes to your next vote in in line? How does that work? Right. So so the way it works, and I, I don't know the exact, there's this whole mathematical computation that goes into how a candidate is considered viable or not viable. Um, but say, for instance, just talking in broad terms, say, um, say Cory Booker gets a very small percentage of the votes. He's not considered viable. So all of his supporters who's on their, you know, first first time said, I'm a Cory Booker supporter, um, you know, then they can come in and say, okay, hey, Cory Booker's not viable. Now please choose a second candidate to support. So that could be important say say it was say it was joe biden and, and bernie sanders you know neck neck and neck and those cory booker supporters come in and they change the race because cory booker wasn't considered viable but the other two were so they have a chance to, to weigh see. in and put their support behind one of the I see. So in, viable a, candidates. okay so it's a way you're not really changing your mind you're having it changed for you a bit but you simply you have some choice in the matter right, is what exactly you're and, okay. and the reason why that's important so i should also mention there's going to be an early voting process as well for the first time in the caucus where folks can go to early voting sites um, and sort of early caucus where they'll do the kind of same that same kind of process but in person where you'll be able to fill out a presidential preference ballot but you'll be able to have multiple choices as well um, and the reason why that's important for both the early voting and the telephonic voting is that your actual presidential preferences that you cast through either of those methods will go back to your home precinct as if you were there on caucus day so your local high school your local middle school wherever your precinct would have been those votes are actually going to that site and being redistributed and being part of the process as if you were there in person so that's why it's important that they have all that information in advance because that's going to be computed in real time on caucus day february 22nd of 2020 Okay, so it sounds to me like it's extremely complicated. There are a lot of moving parts. One assumes that thousands and thousands of people are participating, and it sounds like they can participate by phone and in person at different sites. I'm just, to me, I'm wondering, like, wow, is this, are they really going to be able to pull off everything that's needed to make sure that everyone feels? Because now I'm hearkening back. Now I'm thinking back to what happened with the Democratic caucus last time. But people are still mad about what happened last time. It was Hillary and Bernie were the two um, front runners in, in Nevada. And there's still a lot of bitterness and anger and claims about unfairness and um, everything from credentialing when they arrived to how the system uh, worked. We've been getting tons of comments on the website from from people about this. So people care deeply um, and I like to be an optimist and say, yeah, this time it's going to go perfect and run run smoothly. But I'll, I'll be very curious to see what the response is from Democrats in the months to come um, and to kind of follow the Democratic Party in Nevada and see how are they managing their communication, making sure people feel comfortable that this time we promise for real, like it's going to go well and we're going to make sure every vote gets counted. Right. And that's something that the party has been talking about even over the last couple of months is just this caucus education process. I mean, they say it started right after the last election. They were doing these listening tours, trying to heal some of the old wounds of 2016. I think it's an open question still of how much those old wounds really are healed. Um, but I, I think that's really going to be what you were saying, the biggest question going into this. There were a lot of folks, um, especially supporters of Senator Bernie Sanders, who felt like the election was taken from them. Um, th- there was this whole series of machinations that I covered back in 2016 between the caucus level and then the, the 
county convention level and the state convention and how the delegates were apportioned. It's a very complicated process. So a, a lot of folks had a lot of concerns about the way that it played out and sort of lack of understanding about, you know, how, you know, can you actually get more delegates? If, if Hillary won most delegates out of the caucus level, can that change at the county level? Can that change at the state level? And the parties made some tweaks to that process to try to alleviate some of that confusion. But I mean, I think there could be real questions, right, about um, how this process plays out. If uh, if at the the, the precinct level on, on caucus night, you have a, a bunch of supporters of one candidate and not a lot of supporters of the others, and then suddenly the virtual results come in and the early caucus results come in and show this huge amount of support for a different candidate, I think I think it's only natural that, that folks are just going to have concerns. So that's, you know, something the party is keenly aware of and something that they're going to have to work on over the next couple of months to ensure folks of the integrity of the process. Yeah. Um, my conscience is perking me a little here. I, I feel like I should say out loud for someone who's been, because I've been following politics for so long in this state and following county and party politics at a state level in particular, it's not just the Democrats who have struggled. Uh, back in 2010, um, the state convention absolutely fell apart on the Republican side. Many of the same types of issues and complaints that we're talking about right now happened. Um, they actually, I don't want to say something that's incorrect because then I'll get angry emails. Um, but I do remember that there was a big ruckus and there was a lot of anger and dissatisfaction um, about whether it had been fair and how it had been handled and all of that. So I think what it really comes down to is that Party-level politics, people are engaged and they care deeply and it matters to them. And if they're going to take the time to participate, they want to make sure um, that the process is, is fair. So I, I just – whether you're a Republican and Democrat or anything else um, party-wise, I, I think it's just natural to be concerned about these things. But Megan will keep on reporting on this um, from now till the caucus. Um, and so let's switch gears right now and just talk a little bit about which candidates are we seeing in Nevada the most – what kind of groups are they appearing before when they come? How many people are showing up? Do we see any momentum? To, to let Just take us through the what, what we're seeing, let's just say, in the last um, month or two, because we've still got close to 20 candidates that we're, that we're dealing with uh, now as we work our way through the group. Yeah, there are still 24, actually, because we lost uh, a congressman from California, Eric Swalwell, but then California billionaire uh, Tom Steyer jumped in this race, so we lost one, gained one. We're still at still at 24. Um, it's been it's been quite a lot. You know, we've uh, I you know, I was up nor in northern Nevada. So I was covering some of the visits up here while my colleague Jackie Valley was covering a lot of what was going on down here. Um, but even just the last week, the sheer number of candidates that we saw come through, um, Senator Elizabeth Warren came and did uh, two events in Nevada. She did one in uh, Las Vegas at the East Las Vegas Community Center. I was at that one. It was this kind of um, campaign rally in the round where there were she was sort of closed in on all sides by supporters. She kind of likes walking around the stage anyways uh, while she talks and gives her stump speech. So it was sort of arranged so she could, you know, directly talk with everyone. But that that room was standing room only. It was it was packed. But, it, you know, if you go and you talk to voters there, there's a lot of folks who like her, but there's a lot of folks that like other candidates too. You know, it's it's so early on. Um, and I think there's just, you know, if you if you look at the, the candidates like a Venn diagram, there's a lot of areas of overlap where people say, I like 
this from Elizabeth Warren, but uh, Senator Kamala Harris, I really like her too. She's a, a woman of color and I, I, you know, I've followed her in California and I really like her policies or, or vice versa where, you know, someone's all for a candidate, but there's one thing they don't like. Um, so I think it's been really interesting to talk to folks. There's just, I, I feel like they're not as many people decided at this point in the race, which, you know, you would kind of expect um, with the sheer number of candidates in the race. So Elizabeth Warren came, uh, Senator Cory Booker came as well. He did a few days of events here in the state. His mom actually lives here. So, you know, he got to spend a little bit of time with her for the 4th of July holiday. He marched in the Boulder City uh, Danbury Parade, uh, did some something in Boulder City, did some immigration events. So he was here as well. Bernie Sanders was here. Uh, Senator Bernie Sanders was here over the weekend. Uh, he was at Victory Missionary Baptist Church, uh, did an East Las Vegas campaign opening. So we've, we've just seen so much going on. And then up north, um, former Housing and Urban Development Secretary Julian Castro uh, went to West Wendover. He's the you know first candidate that anyone can remember in a long time who's actually gone to West Wendover. And the city's mayor, Daniel Corona, actually endorsed him. So that was a, a big deal for him. Um, and then he went to Elko, made a stop in Elko, and then went went to Reno. So he he can have that distinction of saying, you know, I've, I've been to rural Nevada, I spent the time, <laughs> I I met the people there. So that that's kind of a last week in a in a nutshell. I feel almost a little self conscious about all the candidates we haven't um, named. I I think I was trying to pay attention as you were talking that I think you named close to everyone who's polling in the top ten either nationally, I see you counting in your head, um, you know, or in any of these early state polls. But caucuses are notoriously hard to poll because it's such a limited amount of the voting population. And even national polls, as we know, have been wrong. Um, and, and people, I think, this cycle especially are a little sensitive about polling. I think one of the reasons that the DNC made this decision to really get out of the way and just welcome as many candidates want to come in make sure that if they have the lead if they if they can hit one percent in the poll um, and get any reasonable amount of contributors and any reasonable amount of state and any reasonable amount of money we're going to let them on the stage that's why we had to have two debate nights um, recently with 10 candidates per night and that may repeat itself at least once more um, as we're rolling towards August and, and September but I don't know. It seems to me that it's probably a good thing this early on um, for everyone to be hearing as much as they can from um, from all these candidates. Let's talk a little bit about endorsements, Megan, because we've decided at the Indy we're not making we're not reporting on the site about endorsements yet because most of the endorsements that are coming in um, are not from, let's say, major elected officials such as like a constitutional officer or a party leader. Uh, or maybe a you know one of the majority or minority leaders in the legislature, so on and so forth. We're going to talk more in future months about how and when do we report those kind of uh, endorsements. But I do want to tell everyone that you've been tweeting endorsements, uh, Megan Masterly on Twitter. Just follow her there if you want to know who the early endorsers are. Then you can get it from Megan um, on Twitter. And the other thing I want to mention, um, we're just about out of time here. You mentioned, uh, Cory Booker and, um, his mom lives here in Nevada. I, I had the pleasure of reading your Sunday feature on Cory and his mom, uh, today. Um, it's going to be publishing in a couple days, folks. So please make sure to check the NevadaIndependent.com on Sunday. Um, a really fun and interesting story about 
Cory Booker's many ties to Nevada, his family's ties. I don't want to give any spoilers, but there were some really interesting anecdotes um, in the story, and I, I definitely enjoyed uh, reading it and it, a lot of stuff I didn't know about, about Senator Booker. So that's it for Indie Matters. I want to thank uh, Megan Matcherly for joining me today and thank our partners here at uh, UNLV Radio for allowing us to have a little bit of their airtime uh, week in and week out. Uh, we'll be back next week with more of the same. Thank you.